Onika, what's your relationship like with your social worker? It's pretty special. It's it's a unique relationship. Um, he's more like a big brother sometimes than he is a social worker, but he's always you know guided me in the right direction and, and let me take the lead in my own health. So he's a pretty amazing guy, and it's a pretty amazing relationship. y'all it's onika and jr and you are dishing with dainty dish how you doing today jr i'm i'm doing well i'm having a good day as i was telling you before i'm having like a clear head Mm -hmm. it's like a clear-headed day um so i'm enjoying that so uh yeah i'm doing good how about you I'm doing all right. Um, just wanted to give everyone a little bit of an update on our friend Anna. She has found a space for herself. I'm very excited to say. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, she's doing really, really well. She's has to say hello to everyone. Um, but in regards to me, I'm I'm doing excellent. I'm doing really, really good. Things are good at work, and um, a lot of things happening on the horizon. Like I said last week, but I still haven't gotten that word yet. So I'm not going to tell you what's going on quite yet. Hopefully, I have some good news for you next week, though. Um, but today we have a guest on our show. Um, I would like to introduce you to Donna Alexander. How are you doing today, Donna? I am great. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you for being on the show. Um, so before we get into things, I want you to just tell the, the, the listening audience, you know, who you are and what you do. So I am a social worker um, with a specialization in addiction and mental health. And for the last 15 years, I would say I've been working primarily with black. I have the incredible honor and privilege to work primarily with black youth 13 to 24 to provide addiction and mental health services, support services to them. So it's the joy of my life. (laughs) And I have to say that it's... um, it's a labor of love um, that I get to work with these beautiful children and emerging adults every day. And it's what's keeping me going. Okay. Yes. Tell us a bit about the programs that you guys provide for these youth. So current, so the program I work in is called the Substance Abuse Program for African-Canadian and Caribbean youth. It's quite a mouthful. So <laughs> that's why we call it SAPACY. And it's... Right, it's at CAMH. It's been at CAMH since 1997. So it's mm-hmm. it's housed at CAMH in the Child, Youth, and Family Program. It's one of ten programs. It's the only ethno-specific um, program that provides services to Black youth in Canada. And uh, I, we we don't have another program like this that I've ever heard of that provides services just exclusively to youth of African descent. Um, and we, so we do a wide range of services. We do uh, first assessments, um, treatment planning, referrals to psychiatrists and other services in CAMH as well as in the community. We also do a lot of work within the community, a lot of outreach, a lot of community development work, a lot of um, affiliations, partnerships with community members as well. And a major part of the program is research as well as well as teaching. And uh, like I was saying before, just training of staff um, to develop capacity to work with black youth um, that are living with um, concurrent disorders. And when we say concurrent disorders, we mean those that are living with mental illness as well as substance dependence. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, so the... So in a nutshell, it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult job, but like I said, um, incredibly rewarding as well. Okay. And what are some of the challenges that you find that you face in your job? Well, you know, like resources, you know, continue, like resources is always an issue, right? When you talk about ethno-specific services for black youth within the greater Toronto area, then... There is a lack of resources. Like right now we have families driving from Niagara Falls, from Coburg, from Mississauga, from Aurelia, from Oshawa, right? Really? Yes. Wow. Yes, because, and you know, and because having someone provide services to your child from a 
um, ethnocultural lens is so important to families, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is why, and it's you know this is why families will will take the the drive from so far in order to have their child seen by someone of African descent because that's how crucial it is, or they view it, right? So, like I said, I wish there were other programs like this in the community, right? Um, and it's not just, you know, Sapisi, by the way, it's, it's other program as well that, that with a focus on racialized community where people will drive, where people will even take the bus for three hours to come for, or for a one-hour appointment. So, mm-hmm. you know, so that's, a, you know, that's a, a huge piece of it. When you talk about with the job, like, you know, challenges in terms of the job, mm-hmm. right? You have to look at the context of what is going on in the community right now, in the black community, right? So right now in the black community, we are grappling with a serious mental health and addiction crisis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to be, in com- because it, that informs everything, right? So right now, as a community, we were used to the homicides, right? Unfortunately, we were mm-hmm. used to black youth, you know, with homicide, the homicide rate among black, black youth being higher than the general population. And so now, but now what we are grappling with also is a suicide rate that is increasing as well. So when you look at the homicides, but you also look at the suicide and you look at the trauma, the collective trauma that is that the community is experiencing, mm-hmm. because you cannot be, when you put children in the ground, when you're putting 15, 16 year old children in the ground, right? And, and you're, for whatever reason, whether it's my homicide or by suicide, then that's a huge collective trauma, you know, on the community. And the overall lack of resources that exist in the community, right? Mm-hmm. So when you look at that, right? When you look at um, just in general, right? The, the trajectory for black youth in terms of the length of time that it takes them in order to access service is usually much longer than the general population. They came each this study a while ago, and what it showed that black youth with psychosis, they, their admission rate or their treatment, it took them an average of 18 months longer to access service than white youth or, or other youth within the population, right? Did they, were they able to like figure out what? Why? Why was was that was that part of the study? Like, was, did they were able to like? Well, some of the- we know why. Well, we know why, and it's a it's a number of things, right? So, first of all, um, we know that the services. We first first of all, we know that there's not an, enough services out there, ethno specific services, right? There are not a lot of culturally affirming ethno specific services out there, right? Okay. So, like I said, we're the only one in the Greater Toronto area, right? So. We know that already. So first of all, it's not like we have this service all over, right? And like, you know, like I was saying, it's really important for, for some people to engage in treatment from someone that looks like them with lived experience, right? Yeah. You just, you just got me there because I was thinking, oh, I was just thinking like back when I was in, like in school, like mm-hmm. the three teachers that um, had the biggest impact on my life mm-hmm. Two of them were black, mm-hmm. and the other one was was Guyanese, the same country my mother's from. Mm-hmm. Like they, so, there mm-hmm. was there was always the, I guess there was that cultural yeah. impact. That I guess so the, it's kind yeah, of it's, it's important. It's, it's to have someone that kind of looks like you or can relate to you when when you when, when you're trying to resolve some sort of issue. Yes, exactly. right. So and so that's you know that's really really important. But what we also know is that a lot of times the pathways to care for black youth. It's different. So whereas, whereas youth from the general population, they will come through their family doctor or through a psychiatrist or some, you know, some other pathway. For, mm-hmm. for most black youth, the pathway to care is usually through the criminal justice system. Okay. So youth will experience psychosis, but it will not be treated, you know, until, and it will get worse. And until it, it gets so bad that they come in conflict with the, with the criminal justice system, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then they get arrested. And then after they get arrested and they're moving through the system, at some point, then it will be, 
determined by the judge or someone within the system that, wait a minute, there might be something wrong with this person. There Maybe there's some mental issues. And then at that time, they will get assessed. And then, then the treatment will start. But by then, they're already in forensic services. And this is why um, a significant... When you look at forensic services, and forensic services are like you that are deemed not criminal responsible, and so mm-hmm. in, instead of putting them in prisons, you put them in like hospitals, right? And they're treated, right? So black youth are overrepresented in forensic services as a result of that, right? We also have, like I was saying, the cultural piece, right? Um, a lot of there are cultural barriers as well, right? Because there is a lot of fear and a lot of misunderstanding mm-hmm. relating to... There still is in the black community. The stigma. Right. So a lot of time, parents will sort, will sort of see that maybe their children are not functioning well, but they, you know, they'll watch it and watch it, but they won't access service. Or they'll pray, they'll go to church, they'll pray. Pray the cray away. Y- yes, right? <laughs> or they'll go, and then it gets progressively worse. Yeah. And then maybe the child will leave home and they'll end up in the shelter system. There is a disproportionately, you see a lot of black youth that are in the shelter really? system. Really? Yes. I work out of Evergreen's um, Center for Street Youth. I've mm-hmm. been working there out of that location for about 10 years. And when you look at the number of black and racialized youth mm-hmm. relative to their number, because the remember, population. you know, exactly. Yeah, because yeah. right now we're only less than 10% of the population, yeah. right? So, so. You, know, you should only see about 10% of the people in there, yeah. Yeah. theoretically. So, yeah. Yes, right? Yeah. So that's when you know, right? So there are numerous factors that lead to this, right? For Because, for example, if you're a black youth and your first introduction to mental health care, right, is through the criminal justice, is through eMERGE, where the police come and the police arrest you and they put the cuffs on you yeah. and they take you to eMERGE. That experience is so traumatizing. So mm. after that, you never want to go back. But you usually wait, and then you wait until it gets really bad, and then the same thing ends up happening again, right? So when you, when you look at, you know, on the whole, like, it's just a lot more... And, and then when you look at the fear that's involved, and some of the fear is, you know, some of the fear of the system, the healthcare system is mm-hmm. justified as well, right? We as black people, we do not fear well within the healthcare system across the board. And in mental health services, when, you know, you, you're most vulnerable, at least yeah. if you're, you're having other mental health issues, you still have your capacity, right? But when you're mentally ill, then you're, you're, at, you're at your most vulnerable. And we don't fear well within the system. We don't. Our treatment outcomes are, are not the same. You know, if there's going to be a fatality in mental health care, then more than likely the statistics show that it will be a young black man. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So when we lose normally in the mental health system, when we lose a client, mm-hmm. right, almost 100 percent of the time, it it will be a young black man. Mm-hmm. Right. So overall, we are not fearing that well. Right. So when you look at forensic, ser- oh, disproportionate we are in forensic services. When you look at our outcome, when you look at our recovery rate, all of those things, you see where the fear is. Right. And we have to acknowledge institutionalized racism within the healthcare system, just as you it it in, it it's in the child welfare system, it's in the educational system. You know, it's in the justice system, but it's also in the healthcare system. Can the healthcare system is not immune from, can from racism. A, can you describe a little bit of it in the healthcare system? Like, give us an example. Like, like an example. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Because I'm not sure I really can think of one. In the healthcare system? Yeah, yeah I, I don't really, I haven't really done, been much, been, have been a part of the healthcare system in my, in my, in my life. I've never really been in the well, hospital. Well, okay. And so, such. so in general, right, when you look at resources, mm-hmm. for, for fundamentally, when you look at resources, right, so you have areas, pockets in the, in, in, in the, in the city, for example, where, where, where you, even for hospitals, right, where mm-hmm. you have rich hospitals, you have poor hospitals. 
and, and where the poor hospitals are located are usually in racialized areas. So you have some hospitals in Toronto right now where their, their operating rooms have been renovated five and six times. You have other hospitals, and I could name one, but I won't bother. Well, I, I won't, where I went to a fundraising event for the hospital, and I was told while sitting there that we, we're still using the same operating rooms from 1954, right? Mm-hmm. So resources are not evenly or equitably Equitably, we're not talking about equality. We're talking about equity. Yeah. Equity, you know, equity. Because yeah. it's different. No, you just because equity. Hospital- equity is different because equity is that you allot resources according to the needs. So it's not equal, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So, it, but it's according to the needs. It's based. So, if this one need twenty percent, that's what you give. If this one need thirty percent, that's what you give, right? But you don't go and you give everybody. 50% because maybe that might not, might, that might not be the need, right? Mm-hmm. So, but when you look at the actual interactions within the, 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 the staff, remember, you know, the, uh, healthcare workers are made up of people, right? Mm-hmm. So they're made up of people. And just because you're a healthcare provider, you know, you have the Hippocratic Code, first do no harm or whatever, right? But you also have to understand that it's people, Right at the end of the day, these are people, and every single um, profession, you know, you don't just leave your your prejudice, your biases at the door when you walk into the the institution where you work. It doesn't work like that. Fair enough. <laughs> right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you? No, you can. Can you it's, just it's the moment you, you walk into your institution where you're working, you just change your biases and your your racism and your stereotype, your 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 it doesn't work like that. You take that with you, right? Mm-hmm. And so, for example, if you're a 15-year-old child, right, but you're six foot five, 280 pounds, then what happens? Well, what, they're going to treat you like a criminal even if you're not. Yeah. People are afraid of yeah. you. And so if there's going to be restraint, right, and whatever, and you raise your voice, then there, then if it's a black child and you talk loud, you then you're going to be deemed... In a lot of situations, whether it's healthcare or not, you're going to be deemed uh, aggressive, aggressive yeah. and hostile and aggressive, mm-hmm. right? And then what happens is that there is an overreaction, right? So you might call the police or you might call security mm-hmm. and then you might get restrained. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are also, when we talk about vulnerabilities, those are the things that we're talking about, right? Those are the challenges, the inherent challenges within the system that we have to grapple with. Uh, you know, when it comes to black and racialized people, mm-hmm. the condition is different for us. The, you know, it's not the condition across all indicators. The conditions are always different for us, even when it comes to mortality rate. Right. Every hospital, they do view their mortality rate. Right. So an, an acceptable rate is like 100 deaths for, I think, every 1,000 admission, right? Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, but, but if you look at the mortality rate, right, in areas racialized, you will see that some of the hospitals, their mortality rate is like 137, 140, 129, whatever. If you track those numbers, you would see that, that those are... It, Mostly in racialized areas where you have so-called "quote-unquote" poor hospitals. It's interesting because my parents used to live um, in a part of town where um, they used to go to Sunnybrook. Mm-hmm. That was that was like our home hospital, mm-hmm. and then they moved. They moved probably like across the street, maybe like a kilometer. And now they they have a new hospital, which is it does not have the same facilities. It does not have the same resources. I can see it like a lot of the rooms. Didn't have like when a you lift. Go, when you go like, into like, so when like, you go you know. to a rich hospital, yeah, you don't need anybody to say to you, "This is a rich hospital." <laughs> yeah. you, know. you have eyes, and the no, human eyes, you know. the you human know. eyes are designed to see everything within a certain radius. So when you go when you enter into a rich hospital, you know you're in a rich hospital. Yeah. Conversely, when you go into a poor hospital, you know it's a poor hospital. <laughs> and if yeah. you you know yeah. you know, yeah. I don't have to tell you. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't I, I wasn't catching it at the moment. But but then as soon as you said it, I was like, oh, yep, yep, that's it. And then you look at the neighbor, the neighborhoods where those hospitals are. Are, you look located. At, are located. And you see the demographics that are in those areas. They, those hospitals 
probably should have some more resources thrown at them. Yes, because th- those areas are racialized immigrants, refugees. Yes, people of the, the the you know in terms lot, of larger families. I yeah. mean, like a lot of immigrants low, have larger families. Yeah. There might be there's, there's more population density. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, density. Yes. Yeah, exactly. There's more density in those areas, so you should have more resources there. Yes, and that's when we talk about equity. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what we're talking about when we talk about of equity. Right? Mm. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about equality. And a lot of people get confused between equality and equity, right? But I'm talking about equity. That's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And so in healthcare dollars or whatever, you know, like, you know, healthcare in general, we as black people, we're still struggling for equity across all indicators. Okay. Another struggle you and I had discussed um, when we had met was the fact that a lot of young, like a lot of young black youth um, are struggling without like fathers, you know, they, they don't have that male presence in their life to direct them. I remember us having a really good conversation about that. So I want you to touch on that a little bit. And so this is where the, 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 the ability to relate comes into it, right? We, you know, the, the community, and the context again is everything, right? So we, ha- we have a community where we're, you know, we have a significant number of um, single mothers, right? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong in being a single mother. Would you say single mother or would single you parent. say, or, sing, or would you say, um, single parent? What single mothers? Co parenting. Would, would you say? No, not from my Cause, experience. Cause the word single means the other person's not involved completely. And I... I'm just looking for yes. clarification. That's yes. it. That's it. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. And so that, so for a while, our program did not have a male social worker. We had a staff that was, uh, that was all female. We, we had males and then the staff composition changed and we had all females. And so one of the requests we were getting from, from mothers was like, you know what? Um, do you have a male? And, of course, the answer was no. And they said, oh, you know, I would really like my son to access service in the program, but honestly, I would prefer for my, for my son to work with a male, mm-hmm. right? And that's something I understood readily because if you're a single mother and, and your child is not exposed to a positive, and the research, you know, indicate that for a male child, for a male black child, right, just having one single Male in positive male influence makes a huge difference, right? And so, when a single mother asks for a, a, a male social worker, a male counselor, they're not, you know, they're not saying, okay, this man, this person will take the place of my child's father mm-hmm. or whatever, right? But what they're looking for is just one positive male influence mm-hmm. in the midst of so many negative male influences that might be in that child's life. Or, mm-hmm. you know, because, because she knows that makes a difference, right? The reality is that our black males are dominated in spaces, in schools, in CIS, child welfare, in spaces that are, that are over, overwhelmingly white middle class women. Okay. When you were going to school, like you said, you had mm-hmm. three, right? Mm-hmm. I, for me, for going to school in Canada, I never had a black teacher. Wow. I had, I, I had three. I never had one. Uh-huh. I had a South Asian teacher that made a difference, right? Yeah. But yeah. you see what I mean? I had a South Asian that, and it made a difference, right? Yeah, yeah. Right? And so someone I know is a black teacher, and he said, even though he's black, like all of the racialized parents, they want to talk to him, whether or not he's teaching their child or he's involved with their child or not. And so, so that's important because it takes a male, Right, who has gone through the rigors of, of growing up male in order to teach a younger male how to do it? Because black males, fa- black males are devalued. In this society, they're devalued. Right? Yeah. We don't we don't recognize the value of black males. Right? Black males are very visible, extremely visible, but also very invisible at the same time. So in certain areas, they can be very visible, mm-hmm. but, but it's like a, a contradiction, right? You'll see them, you know, they'll walk down the street and people will see them when it, when, when it looks as if 
they, you know, anything and they're seen as a threat. But otherwise, they're totally invisible. When it comes to spaces where people do not recognize even a black man in authority, they'll walk in and the black man will be there in authority, but he'll be totally overlooked for, a, for, for someone else underneath him that they'll walk up to the other person. They'll say, I need to speak to the manager. Or they'll come up to the black person and say, oh, I need to speak to the manager. Right? So that's the experience of being visible but not but being invisible at the same time. Right? Um, when it comes to, you know, in the school system, like I was talking about before, right? When you're in the school system and you don't have a single black male to model yourself, to teach you, how do you be a man when, when there's no man teaching you how to be a man? A woman can't teach a man how to be a man. No. I agree with those words, <laughs> but you have no idea. Um, yeah, I, my dad played it. Like, I look back now, and my dad taught me by example. Exactly. There were so many things like he didn't say, but as a as a grown man today, I'm like, why am I doing this? Oh, I saw my dad do this. He did this. You know, like everything from you, you peeing and putting the toilet seat down yes. to you know, like crossing the street to how to treat a woman, like all everything. Because how like, do you learn if you're a black male and you yeah. have no? You, you don't have an older man guiding you and teaching mm-hmm. you. How do you know these things? Do you just know them by osmosis? You don't. No. You have to have a man teaching you, right? What's except or else in the absence of that, you look around and you, you, you see a man and you start to model that behavior and it might be negative behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then you get the hypermasculinity. You know, where in the absence of a positive male influence, then then men become. You have young black boys that they're hyper masculine, right? What does what does that mean? It means when you when you 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 believe you you have a belief that if that that there are certain things that attach to being a man. Oh, so you're taking all the stereotypes. Exactly. And yeah. okay, okay. Okay. Right. And so being a man is having a lot of money. Being a man, you know, is having a lot of women. Is having a lot of women. Being a man, exactly having the best car, the best exactly. watch, the best shoes. Yes. However, being a man is everything. Those things in moderation. <laughs> in moderation. <laughs> and I'm not, yeah, but but then it becomes heightened. Yes. Yeah. 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 So all yeah. of those become heightened when you when you when you look at all of that and the meaning become you know where where it's not okay if you're a man you keep your word. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. If you're a man, mm-hmm. you 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 care about your community. Yeah. If you're a man, you treat women respectfully. Yeah. yeah. You know, all of those things. If you're a man, then you have integrity. If you're a man, then you're disciplined. If you're mm-hmm. a man, then you're a leader. If you're a man, then you have a responsibility to your community. Right. Mm-hmm. In the absence of someone teaching you those things, you'll never then, know exactly. Yeah. How do you know? That's so true. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Mm. You, you you look at you then you look for the man around the corner mm-hmm. and oftentimes he's in, involved in you know something you know and you start to say okay well you know he looks like he's doing well you do, yeah <laughs> the, 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 you see the perception yes and, you and, see the yeah the you, trapping and you say okay well well this man looks like he's doing well mm-hmm. you know and you start to emulate him so I don't know, can Go I, ahead. I, okay. Yeah. So you, you talked briefly about um, substance abuse. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular substances that are, are you would say are really, 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 I guess, being detrimental to the black community? Um, for a while now, and this is something because you have a lot of black youth. They probably won't use cocaine or crystal meth or ecstasy or heroin or any one mm-hmm. of the other substances, right? But what they will use is 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 cannabis. They will use weed. So, whereas a lot of them have a stigma about using crack, cocaine, yeah. or, you know, they that's, use weed, yeah, that's, right? Yeah, that's a black... Me- like that, yes. It's that, that like, what? Don't, yes. No. Yeah. Because yeah. they think it's pure and it's yeah. natural yeah. from the earth. Yes. And, yeah. Yes. You know, uh, all of those things, right? And so, this is why we're, we're finding for a while now that black youth are developing psychosis, what's called substance-induced psychosis. So you smoke weed, mm-hmm. and then you start to, to develop psychosis, meaning you start to lose touch with reality. And oh, it's feature. happened to me. It's yeah. happened to me. Yes. That was one of my... <laughs> yes. Yeah. You start yeah, to... to yeah. I know what you're talking yes. about. Yeah. yeah. The visual hallucinations, mm-hmm. the auditory hallucination, mm-hmm. the somatic hallucinations. So you're saying this, mm-hmm. is, this is actually prevalent, you're saying? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. There's a clinic... On the first episode clinic at CAMH, we, we have a first episode um, unit where mm-hmm. the first time you have a psychosis, you're, you're, you're housed in that unit, you're treated, and you're released. 
So how is the legalization of marijuana affecting your and, work? And, you know, and that's some, that's one of the things that now it's legal. Now we're we're because after for a while the average age of onset was about where the average age where we would see admit people would be about average age maybe eight, between eighteen and nineteen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then after a while we started admitting younger, like fifteen, sixteen, fourteen. And okay. we're expecting that now it's legalized that that's the trend. So now it's legalized. We expect that there will be some kids that previously never used and never experimented, but mm-hmm. now it's legal. So there's nothing stop them from using. And so we're st- we're expecting the rates of psycho- substance induced psychosis to go up. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So what 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 can we do about this? Like what what are what are some of the the possible solutions that maybe your your team are talking about right now? Well, or we have you guys, to, conversations we, you guys are having. We have to build awareness among our youth. You know, a lot of black families they don't talk about the expectations with their youth, hmm. right? They don't say, okay, well, you know, this is the expectation around weed use around substance use. They never talk about it. That's true. My parents never talked. Did about your parents it. tell you about what the, what the expectation? My dad. The, okay. Yeah. My dad. Okay. So my dad found um, a a cigarette once, um, and he, he's like, if this, uh, he's my, I think my cousin worked as one of those people at the airport where they do the mm-hmm. the checking and all that stuff. So yeah. he's like, I'm gonna yeah. call him and see if this is dope. And I was like, other than that, and like that was the only conversation. Yeah. We had. yeah. And so my from parents never talked about did, it. That was well, never we never we don't it. talk about it, right? No. But from the age of eight or nine, you have to sit. I think you should sit your children down and say, you know what? This is the expectation, right? You you should not. These are the substances. This is what they do. And by the way, my expectation is that you will not use it, or let's talk about it if you're feeling pressured to use. Yeah, let's talk about it if you're feeling mm-hmm. pressured. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's that's, talk that's about if you're feeling pressured to use, because there's, there are negative peer influences out there, right? So let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. But don't just say don't use and just leave it at that. Okay? Yeah. It's like, don't, you know, this is what can happen, Right. You know, I, I went a little bit further with my daughter. I won't. I won't say what I say to her because, you know. <laughs> but yeah, but what I you said, let her know. I let her know. <laughs> I said, you know, I won't say what I say. But you can imagine. Use your imagination and say what I say. If I ever find out you smoke weed, this is the expectation. And if I ever find out, <laughs> so yeah, I made no. it clear to her when she was like nine. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know, there's a thing called drugs, <laughs> and this is what they are, and this is mm-hmm. what they do. And you know, and by the way, <laughs> yeah, this is what it can cause. Yeah, this is what it can cause. Yes, but parents because parents don't, and it's only when mm. it happens when a lot of parents they're well, reactive instead it, of being proactive. Yes, yes, yeah. Yes. So how do you how do you deal with parents then in in in, in your work? Because I mean. At some point, I mean, you basically sometimes it's a lack of parenting that's causing the problem or, or, or leading up to the problem. So how do you deal with that in, in, in your job? Well, you know, once a, once a child is initiated use, right, you, you have to change a tactic. A lot of times parents will think I'm, I'm condoning you, the, you, children's mm-hmm. use, right? So they'll, they'll take the child and they'll say, the child is using marijuana. I want the child to stop right now immediately. And I'll say, whoa, it doesn't work like that. Mm-hmm. Child needs to taper off over a four to six week period. No, I want the, to you stop you. And I, you know, so, so then I'll work with the child to say, okay, how much are you using? How much can we start tapering down, whether it's by the amount or the frequency? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to think about side effects. We have to, you know, why are you using? What benefits are you getting from it? Mm-hmm. Okay, all of those things, right? A lot of times parents don't want to have this discussion. It's like you need to stop and you need to stop right now. And it doesn't Mm -hmm. work like that. Because once a child is physically addicted, they probably could get over their physical addiction in like, you know, a week, 10 days, right? The psychological addiction is something else. And that's what stays, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you say to a child, you need to stop smoking right now, they panic. Mm-hmm. Right, but if you say to them, "Okay, we're going to work on you stopping over a four to six week period," then they're going to be they more can receptive. make the adjustment, mm-hmm. right? And you talk about strategy. How are you going to deal with peer pressure? You know, 
How are you get if you use it as a sleeping aid? How are you going to do with that? What are you going to do when you get triggered? All of those things, and you talk about strategy, you know, you know. But a lot of time, parents uh, they don't want to have this discussion. So what are the so what are some of the um, reasons that you've heard um, amongst Black youth for using marijuana? A lot of it is peer pressure. A lot of it is you know it was introduced to them and. You know, it, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And the first few times, you know, it, it's not a big deal. They feel good. And then they just keep using. But the more you use, like, you know, the more tolerance you build up. And the more mm-hmm. you need to use in order to get the benefits, right? Mm-hmm. And then pretty much, you know, you're one gram, two gram, then you're up to five and six grams. And you're wondering, how, you know. How did I get how here? How did I get here? Yeah. Because it's a very gradual, insidious thing, right? Uh, you know. Like how you just depend on the substance, right? So pretty much, pretty soon before you know it, you wake up and before you go to school, you have to, you have to you smoke, have smoke, right? And when you're at lunch at school, you have to smoke, and after school you have to smoke, and when you come home, and then before you go to bed. <laughs> I could not imagine being high all day at school. All day, that'd be ridiculous. It's um, crazy. Wow. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Um, so. I, I just got tons of. I'm just gonna go. I know you <laughs> just go at it. I, I, yeah, I'm. I know you have questions for Donna. No, um, I mean, so why did you choose getting into social work? Like, what was like what? Because it seems that by this conversation we're having, it's a passion, and you, as you said at the very beginning. Mm-hmm. But what what got you there? Was there was there something that happened in like in in your life, or is there something just something that you you saw a need for, and you just said, "I'm just gonna do this because it, it needs to be done." I, How'd you get? I, you know, I, I was fortunate to have a mother, and I, I say, you know, my mother, my mother's child. I was fortunate to have a mother who I, who that behavior was modeled for me. And so, growing up, we were very poor, right? But my mother was always giving. She was always. My mother is kind to a fault. Was mm-hmm. right. She's passed, but my mother is kind to a fault. My mother was all, and so that's what I knew. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. that that was just natural to me, right? And so later on when I you know, when I was thinking about a career, I thought about journalism for all. And then I said, No, like you know, maybe social service would be, you know. And then by the time I went to social work school, then it was cemented for me. Okay. Because then I started to, to my politics had changed. And mm-hmm. then I started to learn about inequalities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, vulnerable population, right? Injustice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that is, that is what is fueled activism that I have now, right? Okay. So I do this day job, which I love, but I, but I also do a lot of community service work as well. Okay. So because... For me, it's like I was saying, it's about equity, right? Mm-hmm. It's about everybody having a fair chance, mm-hmm. right? It's about the community. It's about giving back to the community, to to people that are, you know, less fortunate than yourself. You know, mm-hmm. someone once said, you know, like, service really is a price you pay for living. And I firmly believe that. Service is the price you pay for living. I like that. And everybody, all of us can serve, mm-hmm. you know, no matter to the extent, in, a, in you know, we can all, it's one thing that we can all do. We can all serve in whatever capacity we can. Because after all, when we serve, we get more out of it than we put in. So a lot of people think when you do volunteer work, when you do community work, when you do all of these things, right, is that it's a sacrifice and you do, right? But you meet the most amazing people for one, most of my good friends, I met them through community service. Exactly. Yes, and you get so much back because because the feeling that, that you get from it, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. But I would have to say the biggest influence would be my mother. Who, okay. yes, who that behavior was just modeled over and over. Okay, so. I've met a few um, youth that want to get into social work and, and as, as a career. Mm-hmm. Um, any advice for them on, on how to get in and, and what things, I don't know, any tips or anything? 
I would say, you know what, if you're going to get into this for the money, then it's probably not <laughs> I don't think anyone's getting into it for the money. No, no, no. Not at all. Donna, you're hilarious. It's like, if you're going to get into this for the money. No, because it's a lot of hard work. <laughs> and you have to be passionate about it. So if you're, I would say, if you're going to, you know, know what you're doing. Social, you know, a lot of people think, you know, they want to get into it. But you'll find that the dropout rate for social work is really high. Mm-hmm. I remember when I took Foundation of Social Work, we started off with about, I don't know, about 40 of us. And and I remember the professor saying to me, it's okay, they'll weed themselves out. Mm-hmm. And by the time the Christmas break and we came back in January, half of the class had disappeared. They realized it wasn't for them. Well, that's good. That's, I think so that's you really ha- good. I though. would say, number one is you have to have a love for people. You have to have a love for people, right? And, and, and a commitment to serve. Because sometimes that's the only thing that's going to get you through, right? Mm-hmm. The love that you have for people. That's what will, um, will nourish you. That's what will sustain you, right? And you have, to have, you have to have the desire to make a difference, so it's a desire to have to make a difference and a love for people. Mm. I think those those are good words. <laughs> those are good words. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Um, how do we bring more awareness to the black community? What? How do we get? How do we get people informed? What What means of communication do we use? How do we? How do we get parents educated? How do we get the youth educated? How do we, like, I mean, like, let's say, for example, um, billboard ads or something like that, or, or is, it, is it through um, mandatory courses at school? Like, what, like how, how do we get... It's, I would say it's, it's a, it has to be multi-pronged. You know, for a while, we were going into the churches. Like, I, I, I was a part of a group called the Black Health Alliance, and we that's started. Hard. We started in the churches. We I, did a lot of outreach in the churches. That's brilliant. Yeah, we did a lot of outreach in the churches. We did, you know, barbershops, churches. You know, we've got. You know, the places where black youth yes. actually are, and they, and where their parents exactly. Are. Okay. Oh, that's that's brilliant. Yes, yeah. you know, um, Afrofest. I mean, we've done outreach. You know, all over the place, right? And but, who's this with again? Sorry. Hmm? Who's the, this with? With the program that I work with, okay. the SAPACY, Substance okay. Abuse Program for African Canadian and Caribbean Youth. So, I mean, we constantly do an outreach. Like last night, for example, my partner was at um, JCA, um, CAFCAN Caribbean African um, Social Services. They were doing an event there. Tomorrow night is going to Mississauga, is doing an out, uh, event. They're talking about the effects of gun violence in the black community. You know, for African Easter Month, we get numerous uh, requests to, for people to come to, to talk, to, you know, to do a presentation, to go to health fairs, to do all of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we do all of that. You know, I mean, it's constant. It's a work, right? Like raising awareness, right? Because we're still seeing too much where families are suffering in silence. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's what we have to get over the stigma of access and support, because as a community we're suffering, and the crisis is is there, right? And the longer we wait, the more, the worse it gets. Yeah, right. We cannot, like I said, we can't have a, a community that experiences multiple layers of trauma, and just we just go on as if nothing happens. But we were taught, you know, like we are taught, you know, we have to be strong, we have to be resilient, and we are all of that. Mm-hmm. But we also have to know when we have to access support. And I think we're, we still have some work to do to, yeah. to, 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 to just to combat the fear. A, a while ago, I went to a, a, a session, to an event, and they were like, it was packed. And when we're talking about with, with the people there, what prevents you from getting service? A lot of them say fear. They say fear of being treated badly mm. by by service providers, fear of having their children taken away by CAS, mm-hmm. fear of being given wrong medication or being over medicated. The black community, 
We have, when it comes to medical things around medical nature, historically, we have not feared that well. I don't know if you know Henrietta Lacks. No. Well, you should do some research on Henrietta Lacks. Because Henrietta Lacks, a black woman from the, from the States, was 32 years old. I mean, she changed the face of modern medicine. She was mm-hmm. the most important thing to happen to, med- to medicine in over 100 years. And, yet, and see, you don't, guys don't, and you, you don't know about her. No. No. Right? I, I will by next, in the next two hours. <laughs> <laughs> there's an entire book. You know, there's a movie, everything, because she was that important. Because prior to her, you know, the medical community was trying to grow cells outside of a lab for years. Couldn't do it until her cells, until they were, her cells were, were just, just multiplied outside a, a lab. And so with her cells, it was used to do everything, to find cure, to do research for almost everything, for AIDS, for a whole bunch of cancers, everything, right? And she was never, I mean, they use the cells without your knowledge or her permission, and she was never compensated. You, you read the story. It's amazing. It's a fascinating story. You heard about the syphilis um, trials, right? Yes, the I, Tuskegee, did, I, did, yes. I did hear about I know about yes. that. I do yeah. know about that. So, so, that was so our, our fear as a black community when it comes to medical establishment, it's well-founded. And even now, I, um, two years ago, I, I went to a hospital. Again, I won't say which one. We... We were doing, we were talking about the same health equity. And one of the nurses, I remember her saying, you know, every time we have, we, we have a death, um, we go in a room because we have to do, you know, like a debrief or whatever. And she said, I am tired of every time it starts out with 31-year-old black male or 56-year-old black female or, you know? And mm. that's when I talk about, when you talk about, we're not fearing well, right? And it could be because we're waiting. Part of that, it, like, you know, are we waiting too long to access service? And if we're waiting too long, then what are the underlying reasons? And a lot of times it's fear. Hmm. As a community, we are extremely fearful. But, we, but as a matter of, some of that fear is valid, right? Yeah. Sorry? Talk, talk, Your talk, question. Talk. Oh, um... No, you actually, you, 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 um, you I can't ask that question. You, okay. you, you already answered it and like you justified it. And I was like, yeah, but it's not okay. But I want to say this though, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just about a black person providing service to another black person, mm-hmm. right? Because, so just, just wait. So the, yeah. question, the question that I had asked I, I, before we started was, um, um, why is it so important that, uh, a, a black person, black people um, are have other black people to, um, to provide services, to provide services for mm-hmm. them, and why is it, why are we segregating it when we're we're trying to be a multicultural society where everyone's all inclusive? So mm-hmm. that was my original like yes. Guess. And so just very quickly, it's if all you're bringing to the table is black skin, then you might as well just forget about it, right? But it goes beyond the skin color, right? So when you talk about a black service provider providing service to, to someone in the black community, right? So the difference, there's certain difference, because what I could say personally I bring to the work is my knowledge of the community, my groundedness, my connectedness to the community, right? But also my, knowledge, my, my commitment to social justice and to health equity, Right, mm-hmm. my ability to provide service in a culturally safe, culturally affirming manner, right? Mm-hmm. That promotes racial racial pride, right? Because that's very important, right? So it's not just about the blackness, right? It goes beyond that because if you have someone that's black but you're not conscious, they don't have the level of consciousness. They lack the critical thinking skills. They don't know what's going on in the community. Right? Then what are you doing? So it goes, it's much more than that, right? So you have to have the analysis piece, right? So the clinical skills, yes, those are important. But like I said, you have to have a context. You have to be informed and being grounded within Afrocentric principles, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that is what I bring to the work, right? So it's not just I'm coming here and it's a black person. It, It goes beyond that, right? You have to be woke, (laughs) <laughs> like, like the kids would say, woke. you gotta be woke. You gotta be you, woke. You have to be woke, or else what else are you doing, right? You have to have, you know, a commitment, right, to 
to talk about, to advocate and to mediate for your clients, right? So that is all of that. It's about your politics. All of that is what makes a difference when you're, when you're providing services to black youth. That's why it's important. Drop the mic. <laughs> well, well put. Yes. Because mm-hmm. that was one of my concerns. I was just like, what, like, what, what value is being added? But that—that's what it is. It's—it's it's the, it's the knowledge of the, of the community. It, it's it's being a part. It's of that your community. ability to occupy spaces in the community, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And and not and not and people not immediately reject reject you. Yes, because yeah. of that. To, to relate to, to relate, speak yeah. the language, yeah. mm-hmm. Cause, right? Because they're going to listen to you. You were able to go into a church. Yes, you know, a barbershop. Yeah. Exactly. Or, you know, to speak the language, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. It's about all of these different norms and mores culturally, right? That you know, right? Mm-hmm. And you can walk confidently because you know you know. Because mm-hmm. you're taking the skills that you've been trained on. Yeah. Plus the things that are Because just- I was trained in a Eurocentric view, Mother, yeah, right? Yeah, we were yeah. all trained yeah, in Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I am ro- I'm, I'm rooted within my Afrocentricity, right? Mm-hmm. So I know that, okay, as African people, we're strong, we're resilient, right? And so all of these things is what I take to the work. Mm-hmm. So when I say to a, to, to a young person, right, that's facing all of these oppression and whatever, I say you have to resist. And this is what resistance look like. And, and not only that, but resistance is in your DNA. Because if you were not strong, if you didn't have it in your D- DNA, you would have been dead by now. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me that you cannot recover from this mental illness. Mm-hmm. Don't tell me. That. I don't want to hear that. You must resist, you know, you must resist. And this is what resistance look like because you have, you're strong and you have it in you. It's a sum. All right. Donna, like, I'm, <laughs> if people could see the smile on my face right now. Oh yeah, we've, uh, we've had a lot of points today, guys. I hope you are taking notes. Uh, Donna, thank you so very much uh, for being on the show today. This was an excellent conversation. Um, It was really good. Um, If you guys want to ask Donna any questions, I can always forward them to her. Uh, Drop us a line. If you want to talk to us a little bit more, again, drop us a line. JR, uh, actually, before we get to JR, Donna, is there anyone you'd like to say hello to? No, I'm... You like that? Thank you for having me. This was really I I like to reason with my people. (laughs) (laughs) JR, please tell them how they can reach us. Most definitely. Uh you can reach us at dish D Y S H at daintydish.com. Uh if you're listening to us on iTunes. Give us five to number five. Thank you so much. If you're listening to us on YouTube, SoundCloud, thank you so much. Subscribe. Uh leave a link. Uh or leave some feedback we truly appreciate that donna thank you so much for being here uh this is one of the best conversations that i've had i can't remember but uh thank you so much it was amazing uh promoting mental health in the black community um there are resources out there um donna just can you give us again we're gonna put it in the link as well or in Mm -hmm. the bottom Mm -hmm. but can you tell us again the program that you're involved in just say it one more time sapacy S-A-P-A-C-C-Y, Substance Abuse Program for African Canadian and Caribbean Youth at CAMH, which is the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Perfect. Thank you. So that's it for me. All right. That has been the dish of the day. I hope you all have yourselves a very, very, very happy hump day.